pray today. Pray over Nancy. Um, ladies, as you can see on the board here, um, Joy Kerr actually um, did the message for today, um, the teaching, uh, but she could not be here. And so she had a work commitment. But instead, we have Nancy right here who's going to be, um, she's going to do a great job. So let me pray over her. Um, Jesus, it is so wonderful to be able to come to you, to take your hand and have you walk with us. And Lord, I want to pray for Nancy that um, as she takes your hand, that she feels your presence. Um, give her a calmness of heart. Help her with her pronunciations, Lord. I know that's one thing in her heart. I'm like, hey, let's be real here. Uh, there's been some crazy names. And it can be intimidating to be up here and having to say these words, Lord. But um, I just thank you that uh, this is the body of Christ. We have joy doing the writing and the teaching part of things. And Nancy graciously um, being the mouthpiece. And isn't that the body of Christ for all pieces of the body? And so this is this is the mouth right now. So we just thank you for Nancy's willingness to do this. Bless our time together and Lord, prepare our hearts. This is the word of the Lord that you are bringing forth in our hearts um, to grow us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And okay, so um, let's see. I'm not sure, which is the best way. Can you just test that and see if it's testing? One, two, three. You yes. hear all right? Or a little bit further up, maybe. Sorry. Once it's stuck now, I can't get it off. Well, I think it was pretty good. You think it's pretty Can good? Can you hear me all right? Okay, just want yes. to make sure. I, uh, you're, uh, to call me the mouthpiece, I've been known as a big mouth. Uh, so <laughs> I'm extending greetings from Joy, who is very sorry she can't be here. She works at Children's Hospital, and uh, she's just a critical person in the life of that hospital. Uh, so she has asked me long ago to take her place. And that, those are big shoes to fill, because uh, Joy is a, a great Christian gal, a great friend, and I know she has prayed hard and worked hard on this lesson. So I actually counted an honor that she has asked me to speak to you this morning. So we're going to be studying 2 Samuel 19 and the continuation of David's mourning goes on. David is uh, mourning the death of his son. It's an exceedingly high price that he had to pay because Absalom was his son, but he was also his arch rival. David's grief is excessive and in a way self-indulgent. It is a mix of love for his son, grief over the death of his son, guilt for his own life, and self-pity in finding himself in this very dreadful situation. David just can't seem to pull himself together. We see that David's faithful soldiers return from battle, having won, but they're Victories soon turns to shame. Their leader is busy mourning the loss of his son, the enemy, with his head covered so he cannot see what the men are going through, and with loud wailing so he can't hear what they're saying. Clearly, David wished to be alone. He has not taken the time to commend his army. David may have retained the crown, but during this time, he abdicated his responsibility as king and leader by remaining silent. 
Leadership comes with a great responsibility of caring for those that you are leading. He abandoned his army and his nation, both emotionally and physically. We find an entire nation waiting to rejoice that David's army has returned victorious in battle and the enemy of the king has been defeated. But no statement was made by the king and the men felt so ashamed that they needed to sneak back into the city as if they had abandoned the battle and fled home. Joab was a great military leader who had a re reputation as a fearless fighter. He was a brilliant and ruthless strategist whose plans almost always worked out, but with little concern for those he hurt or killed. He disobeyed a direct order of the king by killing Absalom to win the battle. This same man goes to the king to give him a piece of his mind. Here are the words of Joab. Today you have humiliated all of your men. You have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you. You hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and we were all dead. And all I can say to that is, ouch, those are tough words. This is a dramatic and heart-wrenching speech given by a man who killed the source of the king's grief. He goes on to tell David how he must respond. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth until now. Now, on a positive note, sometimes we remain too long in our misery. And it's helpful to hear the perspective of another person on this situation. Or sometimes we need strong words to bring us back to reality of how our response is affecting other people. Or on the contrary, maybe Joab needed a little humility. Because of Joab's boldness, the king rallied and went forth with the duties of a king, sitting in the gate, making judgments for those who brought difficult situations before him. And when the men heard that he was sitting at the gate, they all came before him. So a recap of verses six through eight, we find number one, David mourns Absalom too long. Second, Israel feels more shame than victory. Number three, David gives, or Joab gives David a halftime speech like no other to bring him back to reality and get him back in the game. And finally, David rallies and is sitting in the gate and the people come to him. What is noticed, however, is the people are not waiting at the gate for him. David has to do some major repair of the damage that has been done. Moving on to verses 9 through 43, we see the return of the king and the characters he meets along the way. In verses 9 through 15, and again in verses 41 through 43, we find Israel and Judah at odds with each other once again. There is an ongoing divide among the people of Judah and Israel. These verses are the bookends 
of this chapter showing the division among God's people. We have seen glimpses of unity in the past. For instance, in 1 Samuel 18, verse 16, we saw that Israel and Judah loved David because he had led them in their campaigns. In 2 Samuel 2, verse 10, after David was anointed as king, we find that he was made king over all of Israel, and the house of Judah followed David. In 2 Samuel 5, verses 4 through 5, we recall that David finally made it to the throne, and he reigned in Hebron seven years and six months, and overall in Israel and Judah, in Jerusalem, for 33 years. But unity doesn't last long. Judah had strongly supported Absalom, and Israel had anointed Absalom as king. Now that Absalom had been defeated, they have no alternative but to rally around the true anointed king, David, whom they had ousted from his own kingdom. That's just easier said than done, ladies. The Israelites flee to their homes, and the tribes of Israel begin their bickering. We hear them say, the king delivered us from our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled the country because of Absalom. Now Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, is dead. Why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? The bickering continues, and David is made aware of this. All that being said about him through the operatives that he thoughtfully sent back to Jerusalem as he left. David did not sit back and wait for his own tribe, Judah, to support him, but he took necessary steps to gain their acceptance. First step, he sends a message to Zadok and Abiathar, asking them to lobby his support among the elders of Judah. David appeals to their pride by informing them that the other tribes of Israel are behind him. Ask the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to the palace since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? David appeals to the sense of solidarity and the relationship as he reminds them that he's from the tribe of Judah. You are my brothers. You are my own flesh and blood. So why should you be the last to bring me back? Second step. David appeals to their anxieties by enlisting Amasa, the former commander of Absalom's army, as the new commander of the army. Are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me ever so severely. If from now on you are not the commander of my army in place of Joab. By forming this relationship, David is building bridges with those who had served under Amasa. Joab is now feeling the repercussions of his decisions, as this is clearly a punishment for his insubordination in killing Absalom. The result? David won over the hearts of all the men of Judah as though they were one man, and they sent word to the king, return, you and all your men. Now let's pause for a minute. David was anointed king, ordained by the Lord, he belonged on the throne, not Absalom. The people of Israel made the decision to overthrow the throne and put Absalom in his place. David is a wise peacemaker 
He does not return to Jerusalem, scorning those who were against him. As Dale Ralph Davis mentions, many would have expected him to return with an axe rather than a scepter. He's a politician of sorts, appealing to his own tribe who turned so heavily against him. He waits to hear back and does not return without an invitation. We know he did not act perfectly in every situation, but all along his life, we see that David has been unassuming in nature, never forcing himself upon any given situation, not replacing Saul as king, not when he was on the run and could have killed Saul, and not when Absalom declared himself as king. David has trusted the Lord in these situations. When David returns, he goes as far as the Jordan River. The men of Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring him over the Jordan. And he meets some characters along the way. Shimei, do you remember him? He's a son of Gera, a Benjamite, and part of Saul's clan. Back in 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 6, we find him pelting David and all his officials with stones and cursing words for the death of Saul. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel. The Lord had repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the king over to your son, Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. This is the first person we read about three chapters later in 2 Samuel 19, 16 through 23. Shimei hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and Ziba's 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei crossed the Jordan completely soaked, he fell face down before the king and said, May my Lord hold me not guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. He's essentially asking David to forgive and forget. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but today I've come here on the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my Lord, the king. Shimei is appealing for mercy from the king. His sincerity may be in question here, however. I think most of us are thinking, too little, too late, buddy. The damage is done. Abishai is standing right there, too, and he's thinking, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David turns to him and calls him out and says, do I not know that today I am king over Israel? David will not spoil this day of his return by executing a fellow Israelite. David promised Shimei, you shall not die. Just when it seems that Shimei is off the hook, in 2 Kings, coming up 2, 8 through 11, we find David on his deathbed. Speaking to Solomon, remember Shimei who called curses on me? I promise not to put him to death by the sword, but now you will know what to do with him. Bring down his gray head to the grave in blood. 
David did not forget. It is not until 2 Kings 2, 36 through 46, that we hear that Shimei promised Solomon to stay in Jerusalem. But a few years later, this promise had slipped his mind when his slaves ran off and he goes after them. When he returns, word gets back to Solomon and he's summoned by the king who reminded him that he swore to stay in Jerusalem or else he would be sure to die. He reminds Shimei that he had said he would obey. He reminds Shimei of all the wrong he did to David and ordered his death. This was the final loose end from his father's kingdom that was finally tied up that would establish Solomon as king. Now, the next character is Mephibosheth. Please forgive me for any mispronunciation. I will try to use he, him, Jonathan's son, any chance I get. <laughs> Mephibosheth is only remaining member of the household of Saul, Jonathan's son. He makes the 20-mile journey from Jerusalem to Jordan to meet David. He is unkempt, to say the least. He appears ragged. He hasn't taken care of his feet or trimmed his toenails. He has not trimmed his mustache and not washed his clothes since the king left. And just to give you an idea of the amount of time, um, David left Jerusalem in 19, or 976 BC and returned in 972. That's a long time not to take a bath and trim your toenails. All right, so it's pretty gross. That's all I can say. Uh, remember when Zeba brought David donkeys and supplies in 2 Samuel 16, verses 3 through 4? David had asked Zeba about Mephibosheth, but Ziba told him that he remained in Jerusalem, plotting to overtake the throne. At this encounter, now Mephibosheth does not appear as one who's trying to overtake the kingdom. So David asks him why he did not come with him, and he responds, My lord the king, since I am your servant am lame, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king, is an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeal to the king? Here he refers to David as the king or my lord the king five times, making it very clear he knows his place. David's at a loss. Who should he believe? Ziba prevented him from leaving by taking the donkeys and slandering his name. On the other hand, Ziba supported David in his time of need, and David had already given him all he owned. Jonathan's son appears to have been in mourning with physical evidence and a credible testimony of his loyalty to David. He exonerated himself. David, in Solomon-like fashion, divides the child with the sword of justice by decreeing a compromise. David orders the two of them to divide the fields. But in compromising, David unjustly favors Ziba, giving him land that doesn't really belong to him and deprives Mephibosheth from what rightly belonged to him. 
Mephibosheth puts aside any further doubts about his sincerity when in verse 30 he states, let him take everything now that my lord the king has arrived home safely. He shows his subordination to the king. He's not looking for a reward or even vindication. His only concern is the king's honor. On to our third character, Barzillai. He was 80 years old. He was prosperous and he was kind to David by bringing basic comfort supplies to David, his family and troops in 2 Samuel 17, 27 through 29. Here we see that he travels 50 miles to greet David. David desires to bless him and bring him back to Jerusalem in recognition of all he had done. But Barzillai is a realist. He recognizes his own mortality and the toll old age has had on his body. Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of men and women singers? Why should your servant be a burden to my Lord, the King? He agrees to cross the Jordan with the King for a short distance, but chooses to return home that he may die in his hometown near the tomb of his parents. Barzillai is known in his hometown and would be essentially unknown in Jerusalem. He wants to be near his family and friends at the end of his life. I think we can all relate to that. In Jerusalem, he would not have his family to comfort him. In exchange, he gives Kim Ham the thought to be a son or relative to cross over the Jordan with the king and tells David to do for him whatever he pleases. Barzillai is not motivated by personal gain, but loyalty to God's anointed. After they cross over the Jordan, David kisses Barzillai, gives him a blessing, and he returns home. In 1 Kings 2, verse 7, David is speaking to Solomon again on his deathbed and asks Solomon to show kindness to the sons of Barley, Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. Barzillai was truly the balm of Gilead. Now, let me pause for a second. I want you to think about the three men that David encountered along the way. And ask yourself this question, who will we find ourselves to be most like when the king of king returns? Will he be like Shimei, cursing and throwing stones only to find ourselves groveling for mercy in the end? Will we be like Mephibosheth, misunderstood but faithful to the cause lame and dependent on the kindness of others, humbled and grateful for the king's return? Or will we be like Barzillai, knowing full well that we have done our best to further the kingdom, blessing, blessing others along our journey? As we forge ahead, we find Judah and Israel, believe it or not, still disputing about bringing the king back. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and asking, why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan? Judah claims kinship with David and responds to Israel. We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten the king's provisions? 
Have we taken anything for ourselves? Israel claims that by sheer numbers that they wield more power. In 1 Samuel 11, 8, we read that the men of Israel numbered 300,000, while the men of Judah numbered 30,000. We have 10 shares of the king. We have greater claim on David than you. Why do you treat us with contempt? Were we not the first to speak on bringing back our king? But the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan told David, why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Nathan's prophetic word of judgment is now in David's nation, not just in his household. Despite the return of the anointed true king, David, all is not right with the world. Dale Ralph Davis mentions that the rightful king has returned, but there is no peace in the kingdom. Animosity and envy among his subjects threaten the stability of the kingdom. Even in our present time, we find division among believers in Christ. Wouldn't it be amazing if we focused on the one person who unites us as Christians, Jesus Christ, rather than on the things that divide us? Alistair Begg says, the return of the king has not united the people. And all that David would have wanted to accomplish, he was unable to accomplish. Only when King Jesus returns will that which David desired be accomplished. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelations 21, 1 through 5, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. For the older things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down words down, for they are trustworthy and true. Amen to that. So I ask you, where does your loyalty lie? We who confess that Jesus is our Lord and Savior struggle at times to keep him on the throne. It is so easy to let the little things become all-consuming. It can be seemingly harmless things like ministry, volunteering in the community and causing causes that are noble and just or total immersion in our work, leaving us little time for church, fellowship, Bible reading, study, and prayer. It can be so harmful to us, such as alcohol, envy, strife, pornography, or eating disorders. There are so many little G-gods 
that we put in place of our capital G God, that they're just too numerous to mention. But if we are worshiping the created rather than the creator, then we have chosen another king over the anointed one of heaven. Many of you are familiar with the hymn, Come Thou Fount. That final verse says it all. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Ladies, let's pray. King Jesus, how we long for your return when you will make all things new. I pray for each one here that they would know you as Lord and King of their life. And when they try to overthrow the kingdom for lesser gods, that they would feel your presence, conviction, and confess their sin so that they may feel the forgiveness and love of the Father. May each one here know that they are a daughter of the King of Kings. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.